Coming up on Philosophy Talk. My top 10 campaign promises when I become president. What is the meaning of a promise? If you bring a gator to the White House, I'll wrestle it. How can we bring about an obligation just by saying something? You know, for over a century, there have been only two Dakotas. I plan to double that. Are we ever justified in breaking a promise? To keep the budget balanced, I'll rent the Situation Room for Sweet 16. Should we keep to a promise we shouldn't have made in the first place? If you're having trouble getting a flight and Air Force One is available, it's yours. What value do promises have? I will double your tax money at the craps table. Our guest is Sir Neil McCormick from the University of Edinburgh. How about that? And the number one Barack Obama campaign promise. I'll rename the 10th month of the year Baracktober. Promises, coming up on Philosophy Talk after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today we're talking about the mystery of promising and promises. Mystery, huh? Well, I guess they must be a bit of a mystery. The philosopher David Hume had to write a whole chapter to explain them. He thought promises were essential to the sort of cooperation that makes human society possible. You you think that's you think that's right? I I mean I might help you because I like you and vice versa. I mean suppose you're walking across campus toward the philosophy department and you come across me carrying a load of books. I'm sure you'd offer to help me because you're a nice guy and we're friends. No promises involved, so I don't see that promises are required for cooperation. Well, I mean, you know, why would an old guy, frail old guy like me, help a healthy young buck like you with something so simple as carrying some books? But setting aside the particular example, I agree. Uh, but human society depends on cooperation where people really aren't friends and don't have much goodwill. Hume gives the example of two neighboring farmers who don't much like each other. Suppose it's me and you. Your corn crop is ready to be brought in this week. Mine will be ready next week. Without my help, you'll see part of your crop rot. Without your help, I'll see part of my mine rot. But but neither of us really cares whether the other guy's crop rots. But it's to our mutual advantage if we help each other, right? So won't that suffice for cooperation? I mean, why is promising necessary? Well, I won't help you this week unless I know that you'll help me next week. I can't rely on your friendship and kindness, so what am I going to rely on? We're imagining you to be a mean fellow who doesn't much like me. If you don't promise to help me when the time comes, I won't come over this week and help you. Uh, well, that, that, that seems reasonable, but, you know, it's really not enough, John. I mean, if we were in this situation, it wouldn't be enough that I promise you'd have to trust me. You'd have to believe that I, w- that I would fulfill my promise. So why should you trust me? Well, that's where promises can seem uh, sort of magical, I guess. If I don't think you want to help me bring in my crop, why would I think you'd want to uh, fulfill your promise to help me next week? Uh, okay, that, that, that's right, but I'm not sure it's magical. I mean, the promise doesn't make me fulfill it. Lo- lots of people don't fulfill their promises. And if there were ever a promise I wasn't going to fulfill, it would be to a mean old codger like you. I mean, to trust me, you must, you must think that promising connects up with some other sort of motivation so that I'll fulfill my I promise to you, even though I don't like you, and it would be quite amused to watch your uh, part of your uh, rotting corn crop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, quite right. Promising would be pointless for ensuring cooperation, 
if we didn't expect people to fulfill their promises, to feel obliged to fulfill, fulfill them, even when it involves doing something they wouldn't otherwise want to do. But then that's, that's the question. Where does that sense of obligation come from? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I don't really know the answer. I know it's not inborn, like the desire to eat, sleep, or have sex, or care for your children. I mean, the whole idea, and in a way, the whole idea of feeling obligated to do something next week because I uttered two little words, I promise, last week or this week, that, does, that seems kind of artificial, actually. Well, the British philosopher J.L. Austin had an idea that maybe will help us. He said that when you say these words, I promise, uh, you're not describing what you're doing. You're not describing your intention. You're performing an act, an act of promising. He called the words I promise and some other things performative. Well, I'm impressed by your erudition, and I, but, you know, it really only labels. It doesn't resolve the mystery, the mystery of how uttering words can create obligations that wouldn't be there otherwise. You know, of course, some promises, like contracts, are connected to a system of uh, enforcement, like the courts. So it's no mystery why you'd want to fulfill a contract. If not doing so means you're going to get dragged to court and your wages garnished and all that stuff. Promising seems to go beyond that, though. I mean, no court's going to enforce your promise to make it to your son's next baseball game. Even if the time comes, you, you, you're you irritated with him for some reason and you do, don't really want to go, you'd still be guilt-ridden if you didn't go. So so there's, there's mystery here. Promises are important and, and a little bit mysterious. But luckily, we have an expert, Sir Neil McCormick, from the University of Edinburgh to help us sort things out. We'll start by asking him to define what exactly a promise is. From then, we'll go on to talk about the point, the purpose of promises. Why do we make promises? And what functioning does the whole institution serve in society? And finally, we'll consider just how deep the obligations go. Should we ever break a promise? When? And why? On that note, our roving philosophical reporter, Polly Stryker, went out and talked to people about broken promises. She files this report. As Nietzsche said, one must have a good memory to be able to keep all the promises one makes. If I make a promise, I try to keep it, because that's my word, that's my honor. You give your word to somebody about something or an intention of something that you're going to do. It is a commitment not to be broken. I talk to people on the street about the many different kinds of promises. The ones we make to ourselves. I promised uh, about a year ago to not smoke anymore. (laughs) And obviously, uh, it's not working. Less important promises. Last night, a friend was supposed to come over. I said he could earlier. I promised he could earlier, but then I decided my sleep was more important. And promises with a capital P. I think if you promise somebody that you'll take their cat to the vet and then you don't and the cat dies, that's kind of serious. (laughs) But when you get right down to it, most people talk about promises in the context of romance. I agreed to marry somebody once and I didn't do it. Infidelity, trust, and broken hearts. That's what hurts when a promise is broken. That's what you remember. We always hope to see the best in people and hope they do the right thing, but if they don't, that's why I'm in business. Link Schwartz is a divorce attorney in Los Angeles. Divorced herself, she knows all about broken promises. It's unfortunate that um, a lot of promises aren't kept. I mean, marriage vows are very sacred. Schwartz says some of the main broken promises she sees in her line of work involve infidelity and a lack of emotional support. And when one person is brokenhearted, things can get nasty. You know, people fighting over a pizza they didn't eat. You charge that on the credit card. I never had a piece of that pizza. I mean, to the bitter end, they're going to fight because they've been wronged. 
How does the law view a broken promise of marriage? Can you sue someone for that? There used to be something called heart bomb statutes, and it used to be that you can threaten the person with civil action because they broke that promise to marry you. California abolished it probably the late 30s, early 1940s, as did most other states, saying, well, wait a minute, all these people are going to get married because they're afraid they're going to be sued and they'll have to pay money. Turns out that married people have to disclose their finances to one another. Here's a famous case that happened about five years ago now. A woman won the lottery ticket and decided, oh, yay, I'm now rich. I'm going to divorce my husband. So she filed the petition the very next day and never disclosed the fact she won the lottery. And then about a year later, the husband got something in the mail from the lottery commission, and he checked it out and learned that wife had won the lottery, and whoa. So the court heard it, and the court said, well, since you did that, we're going to take all of the lottery winnings and give it to the husband now. And the case went up on appeal, too, and the court of appeal upheld it and gave all the money to him. For Schwartz, it's not all about broken promises. You know, I also marry people to kind of balance out my karma. Since I divorce them all the time, I figure, well, this will be helpful, now I'll marry them. One thing's for sure, I'll tell my husband if I win the lottery. I promise. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Polly Stryker. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.